Well, good morning. For a moment there, I thought Tommy was going to start preaching the text <laughs> this morning, and then I thought, well, I'm on the wrong text when he got started. <laughs> this, is a, this message is a little terrifying to preach this morning because uh, I know this is a message for hurting people. This is a message for those who are suffering and 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 I know how weak and frail I am to bring a message of hope. And I pray that the Lord will minister through his word to, to all this morning. So where do we find hope when there is no hope? You know, that sea of despair that we sometimes find ourselves in, sometimes even desperation is gone because we can see no way out. The odds are so overwhelming. What goes through your mind then? My military training, they always told me there's always one more thing you can do. Just figure out what it is. You can't give up. Do one more thing. There's always one more thing. But what about those battlefields that don't have that visible enemy? What about the pain that comes from loss or addiction? There are times that we realize things won't be the same. We cannot go back and undo the past. Talking about those times when things are completely out of our hands and there is no one more thing that we can do. What then? The nation of Israel faced this in the 6th century BC as they found themselves in captivity in Babylon. They're away from their ancestral home, captives in a nation that was filled with pagans who were worshiping pagan gods. God's message to them was comfort, comfort my people. Well, the word comfort is a lot better than other words God could, could have said, such as I told you so, or you deserve this, or you're on your own but he chose comfort. And how did he intend to comfort them? By reminding them who he is. He is great and mighty and powerful. He's the creator of all things. And as we'll see today, he will recreate when necessary and he will prove himself the greatest in all the universe. I can imagine as Peter was sinking into the waves of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus just kept calling him, look at me, just focus on me, Peter, focus on me. And yet the, the wind and the waves were too much that he lost his focus on Christ. And sometimes we're in those situations and Israel was in those situations. Yet God still calls us to look to him. So comfort, comfort my beloved today. As we look at the text today, we're going to, See, this is, an, is a complement and a completion of what we saw last week. And not only does this fit well and, and with last week and fit together with it, it's a huge setup for the next chapter. In other words, we need to fully grasp, and by I mean that, we need to take it to heart. What is said here in chapter 41, if we're really going to appreciate what comes next. Now, don't get me wrong, we could study chapter 42 
and, and the following chapters without having spent time in chapter 41 and we'd be blessed by the word of God. However, if you really want to plumb the depths of what comes next, it's important to visit chapter 41 and conclude that all these other options that they face are just futility. And let me warn you, this isn't a history lesson or a message just reserved for the people of Israel and we just get to take a little peek into the past. That's not what this is. We must get personal today. We must let the text sink in and begin to dig out some things that we may not want to disturb. If all we do is look at the text from a distance and think to ourselves, oh, what a, what a foolish ancient world that was. We're missing the purpose of Holy Scripture. How else can I put this? We can appreciate the blessing of chapter 42 without chapter 41, but if we want to delight in it, to be refreshed and revived by it, we're going to have to feel the full sting of chapter 41 personally. We cannot look at this as a history lesson meant only for ancient people. Instead, this is a timeless, this is the timeless word of God written for our good, meant to prick our skin, to pick at our scabs, to open and expose those sores that we have so that we don't just appreciate what comes next, but we run to it and we embrace it. So here's a quick overview of what we're doing today. Remember, this was written originally uh, to the people of Israel. Isaiah wrote to this future people. They were, they were going to live about 150 years after he wrote this. And they were in bondage in Babylon. And what is clear to us now wasn't clear to them then. To them, the other nation's gods perhaps seemed more powerful than Yahweh. To them, it looked like something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. They were no longer in the promised land, serving under a Jewish king, worshiping in their temple according to the way that Yahweh has prescribed for them to worship. And they don't know when it might end, if ever. And when we take a look back at history, no nation so completely defeated, taken into exile, cities destroyed, gone for generations, had ever regained national, independent national status again in their own ancestral lands. And Israel knew that. It looked bleak. That's the original audience, but it's also meant for us today. And this chapter has six parts. We covered three of them last week. We'll look at the final three today. And Isaiah began this chapter with a challenge to the nations. Who is the sovereign God over all of history? And we saw the reaction when Yahweh posed this question. They decided they needed to build better idols. A foolish response. So in the first section, the first seven verses, we have the great question, the answer, and the nation's pathetic response. And we looked at that last week. Verses 8 through 10, we looked at Yahweh's reassurance to Israel. Yahweh turned to them directly and said that he reaffirmed his love for them and said he will be their strength and their help. And then we saw in verses 11 through 16, Yahweh will be the champion of Israel in battle and the ultimate victory when the king returns to establish his kingdom. Now we move on in the verses 17 through 20. We see Yahweh, the faithful, will recreate what has been destroyed. In verses 21 through 24, we'll see a renewed challenge 
to the idols and their complete failure to respond. Then in the, fa the last four verses, 25 through 29, we're going to see Yahweh makes his case to be, this, to be recognized as the sovereign ruler over all the universe. And all this is in response to chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. And the questions that were posed in chapter 40, do people not really know about the greatness of Yahweh? He's the creator of all things and unmatched in knowledge and wisdom. Are you really going to compare Yahweh to idols? Utter foolishness. Idols created by human hands, which then those humans turn around and worship them and expect them to have power. And finally, do people not know that Yahweh, it is Yahweh that renews the weary and gives strength? He is the one who is everlasting. He is the one who does not faint or grow weary and the wellspring and provider for, of all power and strength. Now, none of this is designed to be a sledgehammer to the human heart. It's designed to bring comfort. Because we have comfort, we find comfort in knowing that God is in control of all things and he's faithful to keep his promises. And then finally, we'll conclude with about five lessons we can learn from this text. We're beginning in, in verse 17. This is on the heels of a great but devastating battle described just earlier. The world had arrayed its military forces against Israel. Israel is greatly, greatly outnumbered. And quite frankly, they stand no chance on their own. But then their redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, appears and he fights with them. And Israel utterly devastates their enemies because of their redeemer. But the physical land has taken a beating. People have been hiding in the deserts and they emerge to a landscape of destruction, seemingly perpetual no man's land seen, seen like the warfare of World War I. The battle's over, the battle won, but now what? There's no water to drink, no, not even trees to provide shade from the sun. In verse 17, it says, when the poor and the needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So imagine coming out of the trenches of World War I and seeing the cratered landscape before you. It's all around, just devastation. And now you must rebuild, you must replant, you must restore. However, instead of the World War I rain-soaked, soggy, mud-up-to-your-knees trench life, it's the opposite. There's no water to be found anywhere. The hot sun beats down on you. There's not even a tree for shade. And if you were to get working and rebuilding, you would die of thirst in it. Now imagine you're one of the poor and the needy. Not only do you lack material wealth, but it also means you're powerless. You see in scripture, when we see the terms together, poor and needy, it just doesn't refer to their economic status, but moreover to their social status. They don't have the means to help themselves. And even if they had a guide to tell them, go to this place or, or, or to that place where there's water, there's shelter, there's food, there's work, they don't have the means to get there. A wise man may, able, may be able to impart some knowledge. Hey, you could, better way to live, but their tongues are still dry and the heat from the sun is unbearable. What they need is a champion. What they need is, is miracle worker. 
And while this refers to a future event for the Jewish people, it reminds them of the Exodus when the children of Israel left Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness. God led them into this wilderness void of water and food, and yet Yahweh provided both for them. For 40 years, their tents, their tools, even their clothing and and even their sandals did not wear out in 40 years. Yahweh miraculously sustained them. So now this future people of Israel have only a promised land ravaged by war and they're going to need Yahweh again to restore. And he doesn't disappoint. He says, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Listen to what he's going to do. Verse 18, he says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the box tree, and the pine together. This is a miraculous turnabout. Think about this. River on the mountain heights, on the bare heights? How's that possible? You see, if there was water up on the heights, even not a river, but water, there would be plant life growing. There'd be vegetation. There would be something. The hills wouldn't be bare. That means there's no water. And yet the Lord is going to create rivers out of that. And the valleys where we often find water, they're going to not just have water. They're going to be bubbling up springs, bubbling forth more water. There's abundance. There's more than they need. Then we look out into the desert and the wilderness. It says the wilderness pool of water, the dry land springs of water. Well, the landscape is going to be transformed. And then there are seven types of trees that are mentioned. And these trees don't even normally grow together in the same place. And this is another miraculous provision by a loving and merciful God that they will have trees. And it just shows how God is restoring the land. And he says in here that this is the creation. He has created it. And that brings us to the reason for all of this. Why the recreation? Well, you see, the ability to create is a sign of deity. What makes someone a God? What, how do you describe a God? What's, what's an attribute of God? Well, certainly the ability to create is an attribute of God. And so God is demonstrating here, Yahweh is showing them that, that he is God. We have the creation narrative in Genesis. Yahweh spoke and it came into being out of nothing. And recall Jesus' first miracle. He turned the water into wine at Cana. But not only was he able to change the water into wine, he made it into good wine. And why is that significant? Because you get good wine with age. So think about it. Jesus was able to create wine from water that had the appearance of age. What does that remind you of? Creation. God did not create this earth beginning with only seeds, eggs, and infants. Adam was created a full-grown adult who was one day old and Eve the same. God is able to create 
even with the appearance of age. So when Jesus changed the water into good wine, something that had the appearance of age, what was the disciples' response? That was enough that says they believed in him. The creative act is a sign of deity. And this is why this recreation uh, by the Holy One of Israel. And he says it right here in verse 20. He says that they may see and know that they may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created this. This creative act by the Holy One of Israel, who's defined earlier in verse 14 as the Redeemer, is meant to show the people of Israel that he is God and their salvation. These great transformations are, are too great to be attributed to natural causes. They are designed so that the people will see the hand of God in their midst. God's creative power will be on immediate and open display. This is the reversal of the spiritual blindness described in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, he says, and he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of, the, of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The people of Isaiah's time did not have, they did not recognize who Yahweh was. They did not recognize who their redeemer was. But in this future time, it'll be evident. They will see through this creative act that this is Yahweh, this is God. Then there was a promise that this would happen. Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 32 both talk of this. It says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. You see what's happening here? One day the Lord says, yes, you're going to recognize and worship me as you should, but more so you're going to recognize the son, the Messiah and worship him. It says, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. They're going to speak of Yahweh and the redeemer. And as it says in scripture, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and weep and recognize him one day. So if Yahweh can do these things, these great and magnificent deeds, although in the future, he can certainly be trusted today. And all of God's display of his power and his might, whether the earlier display of military victory or this incredible transformation of nature and the earth itself are all designed to bring glory to his name. So here's the question to you. If God can do these things, even though they're in the future, is he not worthy of trust and praise and obedience today, even before he does those things? Because he's eternal. He's unchanging. We have some amazing promises that even apply today. God does not leave us or forsake us. He will be with us always, even to the end of the ages, he says. Yahweh's not going anywhere from us. That's the God we serve. And now when he gives us rules for living the Christian life, can we trust him that it's for our best? 
when we look at Scripture, when we see how he, how he lays out the Christian life for us and said, this is what it means, this is what it looks like. Trust me, you do this, it will work out. Can we trust him? Our small groups together in our study in Romans 12, listen to some of the things that Christ asks of us in Romans 12. Let love be genuine. You see, we can't make it till we fake, or fake it till we make it on that one. It's gotta be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There are a lot more that he asked the commands of Christ. And we can trust in him that if we do those things, it is for our best, it is for our good. So we ask ourselves this, in what areas, ask, you, ask yourself this, in what areas of your life have, have you quit relying on God? In other words, is there something in your life you think, well, I've gotten this under control now, I've done that. I did it on my own. I'm good. Do you find yourself saying perhaps sometimes in a difficult situation, come Lord Jesus, come, not really trusting that God will be sufficient for today? Yes, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. I do pray that often. But he is also sufficient for today. God will help us to live God-honoring lives while we wait. We both trust and look forward to his return and that means we trust him in present times, both good and bad. God does not forsake his people. He will not forget his promises. So beloved, we can stand firm. As we move to the text, beginning in verse 21, the scene changes again almost completely. He is no longer addressing Israel on his own. He's going back to what he did at the beginning of the chapter, where he, at the beginning of the chapter, he called all of the peoples of the nations together with that great question, who is the God? Who is sovereign over all of history? Give me an answer. He called the people together. He's doing that again. He's renewing this call. He's, he's directly addressing the idols though, those false gods that they have. And that's who he is addressing here. He turns to their nations and then at the end of these two sections, he's going to end with a behold statement which summarizes what we just learned and what his judgment is. Beginning in verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us of the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, he declares, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So Yahweh begins his interrogation to the nations. This time he's speaking directly to the idols to ask the question, who is really the sovereign one that rules the universe? Are you a God, he's asking. And so Yahweh established his position as ruler over history by calling himself Jacob's king. Kingship means that he has the power and the authority to call other so-called gods into account. 
So the challenge goes out to the unnamed challengers to Yahweh's supreme reign. Make your case, says Yahweh. Here's your opportunity to prove yourself. And here's my challenge to you, he begins. Tell us the future, what is to come. You know, a God can do that. A deity, a true God, not only knows the future, but controls the future, determines the future for his purposes. So tell me the future. Yahweh lays out the challenge. What's going to happen in the future? What does it mean to be a God if you can't determine and control the future? And what does Yahweh get in response to that? Crickets. No answer. He comes. So he asked them to predict the future, nothing. So he says, okay, okay. Then explain the past to me. He said, don't just tell me what happened. Non-gods can do that. We can do that. We can pick up a history book and tell you what happened. He said, no, no, not that. He said, interpret the past for us so that we can make sense of the present. Show us how you orchestrated kings and nations and, and even nature to accomplish your purposes. Is that too difficult? You see, this challenge went out to not just give him a history lesson, but explain it. Now, years and years ago, I, short after I got out of the Air Force, three months after I got out of the Air Force, the Kosovo War started. The Kosovo War lasted 78 days. And at the end of it, I was actually hired as a contractor to go and study the war and write a report for the Air Force on the war. And it was interesting because the top Air Force general in the theater wanted to know, wanted to conduct the study. And he was concerned that if the, if the report was written by military members, it might be skewed a little bit by commanders who were more concerned about appearance than truly wanting to know what happened. So he hired a bunch of contractors to do the work. And I got the call to be part of that team that would study and write about the war. And I spent 14 months in Germany studying a war and writing about it. All of the authors were fil uh, former military, so we were very familiar with the Air Force. However, the general was very specific about his request. I guess he was very specific about what he didn't want. He didn't want a history report. He said, that, that does me no good. He said, uh, if you could write a report and say, well, on day one, this happened, and on day two, this other thing happened, and then day three, that thing happened, and then you can just keep going next day, next day, next day. He said, no, I don't need that. What I need to know are the lessons. What did we learn? I want you to interpret this history. We just had a war, and what does that mean for us right now? How can we benefit from this? So we're going to dig down into the reasons that things happened, good and bad, and make recommendations for improving the Air Force. Our job was to take a hard but fair look at the war and, what, and recommend what the Air Force can do differently in light of that. See, that's different than a history report. So when Yahweh is challenging the idols, he's saying, don't just give me a history report. You have to show me the whys and wherefores on what all happened, how you made it happen, how you orchestrated it to get to the present so that we can understand what's going on now. And what did he get? 
awkward silence. The idols are still not speaking. Well, if that's too difficult, back to the first question. What are you going to do in the future? Tell us so that we know you're really God's. So he's, he's pleading with them. Just, just tell me what's going to happen in the future then. A God will know that. And what does he get from the idols? What we expect, nothing, silence. And finally, he says, do something. Just, just, just do something, good or bad. I don't care, make it terrifying, but just make it something that will convince us that you're a God. A God should be able to do something. Can you at least speak? Can you say hello? Do something, God. These were the metal idols that, that were on these pedestals that were welded down and then even nailed in place so they didn't fall over. And he's like, do something. Awkward silence. The idols can do nothing or say nothing. It's a hunk of metal that was fashioned by people who then turned around and worshiped it. It doesn't make sense. So Yahweh gives his judgment. And Isaiah begins with the attention getter behold, Yahweh's about to render his judgment, and this is it. He says, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. You're not real, you're fake. You're not gods, you have no power. You control nothing in history. You control nothing in the future. You are nothing. And since the idols are nothing, his real judgment has to go to the living, to the people. And this is his judgment. An abomination is he who chooses you. You hear that? So people of the nations, this is about you, not about the idols you crafted. That's wood and metal. We know that. Yahweh doesn't blame the piece of wood or the scrap of metal. His judgment's against the people, the idol worshipers. They're outside the family of God. There is no salvation that awaits them. There's no hope that can rest in their hearts. There's no champion coming to their rescue. There's only one true God and, and they had rejected him. It's a funny scene to imagine. Yahweh and Isaiah clearly don't respect idols at all. Very evident. But what does this have to do with us today? Aren't most of the primitive cultures who fashion and worship idols almost all but gone? Certainly here in the United States, you would say. So what's the point? Is this just a good story? Is this just a fun tale that we can hear about this conversation God has? No. Absolutely not. This is very, very applicable to us today. Ezekiel reminds us that idols don't have to be made of, of wood, clay, or metal. He says this, he says, son of man, these men, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. In other words, they have idols in their hearts. It doesn't have to be a hunk of metal. We must see and understand that an idol is any heart level substitute for God. Anything we do is an idol and the world is full of them. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Idolatry is a human problem, not a pagan problem. It's both an ancient and a modern problem. We know the account of the golden calf when the Israelites left Egypt. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, it tells us that that was, that was a warning for us today 
It says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So Paul is warning the church, do not be idolaters. This is something that is this modern. This isn't just ancient pagan cultures. A few verses later, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We're called to flee from it. The apostle John writes in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. Idolatry is a real problem. This, This isn't an ancient pagan problem. You don't look around your house and go, well, I don't have any hunks of metal or or pieces of wood that I go and worship, so I'm all right in that. That's not what he's saying. Christ, Jesus Christ is serious about our joy and he really wants the best for us. And yet we have a difficult time believing that. And instead of trusting Christ, we waffle. Somehow we convince ourselves that obedience to Christ is somehow unsatisfying in our lives. So we gravitate towards those things, whatever they may be, that we think will make us happy. Those are the idols. This this explains why we struggle with sin in our lives. That persistent enslaving sin that keeps us from treasuring Christ. We sin because of the, we believe that the idol, that there's something else that will make us happy. We tell ourselves that true happiness requires more than Christ. Our expectations of him are so low and so unimaginative. So we turn to counterfeit pleasures. And idols rob Christ of the glory that is exclusively his. The remedy to this is to taste the goodness of the Lord each and every day. Prayer, reading and meditating on his word. Be captivated not by idols and their false salvation, but by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. As he says, set your hearts on things above. And now we get to the final portion of our text this morning, the last four verses. Yahweh has challenged and waited for the idols to present their evidence, and he got nothing from them. So now he's going to present his evidence as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And like he did earlier in the chapter, he's going to demonstrate that he's sovereign over all history. He can tell you what happened in the past, why it happened, what will happen in the future, and why it will happen. And he's not cheating off anyone else's work. No one can answer even a single question of this, let alone explain everything like Yahweh. And he says, I stirred up from the north. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as mortar and and as the potter treads clay. And he asked the question, who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and to give Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. He says, behold, again, the judgment They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So Yahweh again appeals to his power. He describes another great power, world power coming. This time it's from the north. And you see, still it doesn't matter who it is. It's Yahweh that will use whomever he wants from wherever he wants. It's Yahweh who's in control. 
Moreover, the, the one that Yahweh chooses can love him or hate him. Yahweh can use somebody righteous or unrighteous. He will use the donkey of a pagan prophet if he wants to do that. He can and does use wild beasts, fire, and even the wind for his purposes. Fish and worms do his bidding. He is sovereign over all creation. So this one from the north who will come and conquer and no one can stop him, he will walk on his enemies as a potter walks on his clay. The point doesn't seem to be, uh, I'm sorry, the point doesn't seem to be in the question. The question is who declared it? Who predicted it? The answer is not one of the idols spoke. Not one of them predicted it. Pagan priests could give predictions, but they were so nebulous, any outcome could be a fulfillment of it. This is why Nebuchadnezzar, when he had his dream, didn't allow, just allow the wise men to explain his dream to him. You remember when he called the wise men, he said, I had this dream, it was disturbing, I need you to tell me what it means. And they said, hey, gladly, tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar was a smart man. He said, how do I know you're not making it up? If you really have that view, that glimpse, that ability to look into the supernatural and to know what it means, then you have that ability to look into the supernatural and tell me what it was. <laughs> the reaction of the wise man was like, whoa, that's never happened before. We can't do that. No one can do that. We can't look into the supernatural and tell you what your dream was. If you just tell us what it was, we can go to the books, look it up and tell you the answer. And Nebuchadnezzar was smart enough to know, no, I can't trust your books and your answer if I can't trust you to tell me what it was. And that's when Daniel spoke up. But you see the, the false gods, they have no power, no knowledge, no nothing. So again, which idol predicted the one from the north? The answer, none of them. However, Yahweh did. He both predicted his coming and his defeat. This may have brought to mind Sennacherib's attack to the people. We're not sure who it was. The text doesn't tell us. What we know is no other so-called deity predicted it. No one advised Yahweh. No one could even speak, let alone give counsel. And this brings us to the final judgment. And again, it begins with behold. All other gods are fake, powerless, and non-existent. Isaiah can't continue to speak of something that doesn't exist. So you don't have to fear these fake gods that are represented by rusty metal. And while today we don't have to confront too many physical idols, we have plenty of gods made in man's image. Many people around us and around this country construct gods in their own image. The God of the Bible is holy, trustworthy, and should be feared. But today we have the magic wish-granting gods that some people desire. We have the weak gods that can't defeat evil or distant, uncaring gods who are far off and not interested in us and many, many others. So let's look at what we can take from this passage this morning. I have five applications. The first one is we hope in the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of his promises. So number one, examine your heart to see who you trust when the worldly hope fades. Ask yourself the tough questions. What did you do last time things got tough? Did you immediately turn to God or was there an intermediate step that you turned to first? Number two, know what changes and know what is constant. Things of this world will change prior to the return of Christ. Both good times, bad times will visit our homes. 
But in all instances, remember the one who does not change and anchor your life on him. The second is, or the, the, second, the next three are fleeing from idols. So number one, find the idols in your life so you can rid yourself of them. What are the things that, that might keep you from coming to this assembly on Sunday mornings? Are you more eager to be fed by the word or to get home to the game? Okay, that's a little ouch there for some people. I know that. But what is it in your life that you've set up as an idol? Second one for, for the idols is find your daily delight and spiritual nourishment in Christ. I know we, we hear this week after week, but it's all true and that's why we say it. Be a man or woman of prayer. Read your Bible daily. Memorize, meditate, study the word. And the last application I have here is serve one another. The act of focusing on serving others often helps us to focus more on Christ than ourselves. Just try it. Serve one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that it holds. We do worship you not only as sovereign over all creation, but sovereign over all history and over all false gods. And still we confess that we do not always find our greatest joys and pleasures in Christ. We believe the lies that we can find happiness apart from him. Forgive us. You indeed are sovereign over all false gods, the idols we construct in our hearts. So crush them for us. Destroy them. Leave not one splinter of wood or metal shaving where they stood. We want to delight in and serve you only. And we pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.